23rd of June, following months of increasing tension between the Wagner Group and the Russian Ministry of Defense, Yevgeny Pogozhin launched his rebellion. Pogozhin's forces quickly took control of the headquarters of Russia's southern military district in the city of Rostov-on-Don, after which an armoured column of Wagner troops advanced towards Moscow. Ending in a deal apparently brokered by the Belarusian president Alexander Lukashenko that would allow Prigozhin to reside in Belarus, he is now reported to be in either St. Petersburg or Moscow. In today's episode of Interregnum, I asked Richard Seymour about Prigozhin's background in crime and his early business ventures, the founding of the Wagner Group in 2014 and the scope of its operations, and its reputation for appalling violence. And we also talked about why Richard thinks Prigozhin can accurately be described as a fascist. Finally, Richard addressed the claim made by some analysts that the abortive rebellion actually leaves Putin in a stronger position. If you'd like to hear the extended hour-length version of today's episode, or if you would just like to support the show, please consider becoming a £3 supporter on Patreon. As well as getting access to extended versions of my conversations with Richard, you'll also get extended versions of other PTO episodes go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. So Richard, we're going to be talking about Yevgeny Prigozhin, the leader of the Wagner Group and of the abortive rebellion or, or coup. And we might talk about how best to characterise what occurred later that he instigated at the end of June. So could you say a bit about Prigozhin's backstory his early career in various forms of criminality and his subsequent business ventures and then his move into the food industry. All of this, of course, occurred in the chaotic context of the early years of post-Soviet Russia, when much of the Russian population was immiserated due to the uh, Western-backed economic shock therapy policies, while a small fraction of the population became tremendously wealthy. Yeah, well, I'm glad you brought that context in because I was going to leave it um, more or less taken for granted. Um, the details about Prigozhin's background, though pretty scant, do suggest, you know, the outline of a recognisable type, the chancer, the opportunist, the violently unstable gangster, um, to be frank. And what we know is that he was born to professional parents, a nurse and a mining engineer back in uh, 1961 in Leningrad, which today is St. Petersburg, which is where he's based. This was at the height of Khrushchevite optimism about uh, the Soviet future. His father was Jewish. His grandfather had been a Red Army captain. Um, and in, in context, uh, this was the era in which the USSR, which was really the first non-Western society to do so, had affected a kind of catch-up with the West in economic terms. Average per person calories were about the same as in the USA. And there was a brief period where it seemed the USSR might actually propel ahead. That was never going to happen, but that was what people thought. This is when uh, Khrushchev was saying, we will bury you and you know, all that kind of thing. Oh, yeah. We're going to produce products that are considerably better than the best that capitalism produces. There's a great book by Francis Spufford about this dream of red plenty um, and the cybernetic experiments that were um, involved at the time. But anyway, that it was part of the uh, also the era of liberalisation. Stalinist era had been denounced, and um, interestingly, there was a recent interview with Boris Kagalitsky, who suggests that Putinism is an, actually in some ways more repressive than the post-Stalin USSR, simply because it's more paranoid and quicker to step on you. 
you know, and more brutally for the smallest deviation. Anyway, by the time Prigogine um, is an adult, that optimism is over. The, the, the Prague Spring has been crushed. Um, the command economy started unraveling in the 70s. Complexity of functions required of the bureaucracy became overwhelming. So by 1979, which is the year uh, that Prigogine turns 18, the regime has fatally invaded Afghanistan. And Prigogine's in a difficult spot at this point because he had hoped to pr- pursue a kind of career in professional skiing as an elite sportsman. <laughs> um, and he was encouraged by his stepfather in this. Apparently he was pretty good at it. But um, I'm not clear on what sort of injury he suffered, but he suffered some sort of injury that basically ended his sporting career for good. And he ends up teaching fitness at a children's sports school, which isn't even a consolation prize. But the same year he starts uh, to steal, he turns to stealing. He's caught, he's uh, prosecuted, he's given a two-year suspended sentence, which he was supposed to work off at a chemical plant. And um, he just became more unstable. He joined a gang in 1980. He started robbing, burgling, swindling. Um, In one instance that was reported in the prosecution document, he choked a woman unconscious just so that he and his gangmates could steal her relatively meager possessions, uh, jewellery and such. 1981, he's prosecuted for offences ranged from armed robbery to fraud. He gets 13 years in a penal colony. And uh, if you know about these, these are brutal institutions which were expanded to replace the gulag system. No hot water, no medicine, backbreaking labor, sometimes 16 hours a day. And Prigozhin keeps ending up in solitary confinement because he's so disobedient. And at one point, he actually seemed to calm down, start reading, and began studying while inside for a pharmaceutical degree. He never finished that. Got out in 1990, and he's missed most of the economic chaos of the 80s, the defeat in Afghanistan, the heady days of Glasnost. He's not part of that. But he comes out, he marries, he has children. And this is the weird thing. He starts setting up businesses. He brought up shares, first of all, in a grocery chain store run by his uh, former classmate. He was also put in charge of a casino corporation, again, bought up by his former classmate. And together, they then start setting up construction and market research companies. And then in 1995, he starts a hot dog kiosk franchise um, after a backfinding trip to the USA, then restaurants and catering. And the question then is, where did he get the startup capital? I mean, this is not cheap to do. And this is Russia in the 1990s. The competition would have been pretty brutal. And I mean, brutal in the sense of some people would have been murdered. And it's hard not to think that organized crime was in some way involved and that his criminal connections actually helped him. It's also possible, by the way, that he got to know Putin in those early days. Um, You know, Putin's the ex-KGB man who he still had a network of connections and funding from that period because they'd seen the collapse coming and they started putting money aside. And he was deputy mayor of St. Petersburg at the time, uh, which Leningrad had just been renamed. And he was also chair of the casino supervisory board. So it's likely he would have got to know Prigozhin in that context. And you could imagine Putin finding uh, a connection to organized crime quite useful in those days of national demolition and reconstruction. So that's sort of how he gets his start. Uh, First as a career criminal and a fairly violent one, then as a reformed criminal and businessman with one can only infer, although we don't know this, one can only infer some criminal connections and quite possibly a connection to Putin in those early days. So around the turn of the millennium, 
Prigozhin starts to become much closer to Vladimir Putin. And one of his companies, Concord Catering, starts winning these major government contracts. And some of the profits from those contracts are then allegedly used to fund the notorious Internet Research Agency and other troll farms in Russia in the 2010s. So how did that relationship with Putin develop and, and how important was Prigozhin to the Russian president prior to the later establishment of the, of the Wagner Group, which we're going to go on to talk about? At first, you would think probably not so much. I mean, Putin uh, was elected president in 2000 as Yeltsin's anointed successor. Um, he stood as an independent at the time, and he had the support of uh, a party set up by Yeltsin, but also a number of liberal conservative parties. At that time, Prigozhin was already running multiple businesses um, and already catering for political leaders at diplomatic events. And by Prigozhin's account, that's when he first met Putin. Whether that's true or not, we don't know. But he said that uh, Putin liked the fact that he would come out and carry the plates to the table himself. And you can certainly, there's loads of photos. You can see him in the background when Putin is meeting Bush or Blair. And he caters for Putin's uh, private birthday party in 2003. So obviously, there, there there's some sort of relationship developing there. And certainly his brand, uh, which you mentioned, Concord Management and Consulting, is one of the most powerful in Russia. He's become an oligarch with direct access to the state, which is very important. As you mentioned, he hoovers up these contracts uh, for construction and catering in the public sector. He keeps winning schools catering contracts, despite the fact that his catering routinely results in food poisoning and contamination outbreaks. And actually, uh, Novaya Gazeta, the um, so-called Samizdat publication, reported that it was able to track his contracts by simply following the pattern of poisoning outbreaks. So I think here the decisive moment comes in 2012, and this is when Putin has resumed the presidency. Uh, he stepped down in 2008, Dmitry uh, Medvedev took over. The assumption was that the regime was going to liberalize. Um, I think after the war in Georgia, that was not going to happen. And Putin said he was coming back. So he did. He came back in 2012. After a rigged election, there was also a rigged legislative election. I think they rigged every election since 2003, something like that. Um, but there were mass protests of a scale not seen since Glasnost. And the regime started to take a very hard right turn, having been basically a liberal, conservative, pro-Western formation. Putin describes the protests as a color revolution against Russia, uh, State Department's uh, inspired subversion, he drafts far-right ideologues like Alexander Dugan uh, for a propaganda drive. Repression has ratcheted up. People start disappearing to penal colonies or being assassinated. That's the year that two important things happen for Prigozhin. First, he wins a catering contract for the whole Russian military at a moment of its important expansion. And second, with the government's support, he sets up his first troll farms. So apparently his personal interest in disinformation emanated from publications like Novaya Gazeta, publishing what he called slanderous articles about his business, meaning probably quite truthful articles. So there's a pretty garish example that comes up in Pomerantsev's book, which is when the liberal opposition figure Boris Nemtov, who was once part of Putin's coalition back in uh, 2000, in 2015, he was assassinated. And so uh, Prigozhin's troll farms immediately kick into gear. The trolls are given detailed instructions by middle managers running in, waving papers, saying, this is what you're going to put. You write these comments on social media, write these comments in the sections, the comment sections of mainstream news articles. And this was a really good way to simulate a bottom-up 
popular initiative to generate the appearance of support for the state, either support for, you know, like uh, the death of Nemtov, the assassination, or uh, for the state's innocence, or both. Um, now, you mentioned the Internet Research Agency, and that's the one that most people know about because of its intervention uh, in the US elections, probably nowhere near as significant as the resistance liberals wanted to think, but it did happen. But the early digital empire, as far as I can tell, which included not just the troll farms, but a, a real network of news sites, was actually mainly interested in controlling the Russian information space and aimed at Russian-speaking audiences. Um, and this was about uh, showing up, well, I mean, he had his personal business interests, he wanted to fight the sort of liberal anti-corruption activists, but also it was aligned with the state, and, and particularly with the far-right component of the coalition supporting United Russia. There was an international aspect to it, which is interesting, and this cohered with the interests of Russian imperialism and prefigured some of what he would do with Wagner. So, for example, as digital operations in Central Africa tended to align, you know, the penetration of local economies by Russian capital, the promotion of his own security and construction businesses, the geopolitical leaders favored by Putin. And he also ended up owning a movie studio, which was mainly for the production of Russian propaganda films, but it actually produced a movie effectively about the Internet Research Agency, about how the troll farms were really the work of these clever uh, kid hackers who just wanted to mess with public opinion for fun, only for dumbass US intelligence to mistake them for a Russian plot. And, you know, so that's how Prigozhin becomes imbricated in the structures of Russian capital, state and imperialism in the first place. And that's all before the Wagner Group uh, is established. So the Wagner Group is established in 2014. What, in your view, leads to the group's founding? And why do you think Putin agreed to its creation? an idea that was opposed by the FSB, the Russian Federal Security Service. And how do you think Wagner should be viewed? Is it a private mercenary company or is it better understood as a kind of parastatal operation that is pretty deeply integrated with the Russian military, but able to provide plausible deniability for operations that Moscow doesn't want to take overt credit for? Yeah, um, so uh, this is the year that Crimea is annexed. And so um, Prigozhin... Um, uh, approaches Putin and says, you need a way to do these things without directly involving the Russian military. And I've been running these security operations, um, these contractors, and he says, I would propose a professional paramilitary outfit that is uh, formally, or, or at least publicly, not under the control of the Russian military. And Putin apparently agreed. And uh, like you say, I mean, this was opposed uh, by the FSB. I don't think that they were particularly important to this decision. This was mainly a foreign policy decision. Uh, basically, Russia needed ways of projecting its influence throughout the Caucasus region, throughout Eastern Europe, uh, throughout parts of Africa and the Middle East, um, which could be plausibly denied because they weren't powerful enough just to project straight military force in most cases. So Prigozhin was given land in southern Russia. His companies uh, were permitted to construct a big training base. He was given 86.26 billion rubles, which is equivalent to a billion dollars. That's a huge investment. Uh, then he was given access to the GRU, um, which is the General Intelligence Directorate, and he recruited 
retired intelligence officers, retired military leaders, a lot of them veterans of the Second Chechen War, to run the thing. And among these uh, is the neo-Nazi ex-GRU officer, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Dmitry Utkin. Um, notably, by the way, when asked about this, Prigozhin said, oh, look, to defeat Nazism, you have to try it on for size. That's what he was doing. Which is a calculatedly contemptible and contemptuous answer. Um, and he was allowed to tour the penal colonies, offering potential recruits who were presumably the toughest psychopaths, and certainly that's what the report suggests, their freedom after six months of service. Basically, um, uh, it would be suicidal service. There was a high risk of them dying. And those are his people. I mean, as we know from his past, this is his environment. He can talk to them because he's one of them. He understands them. Anyway, the Wagner Group sets up its units in Donbass, eastern Ukraine, and uh, elsewhere too, but we'll come back to that. And Prigozhin's paramilitaries, when they get there, they're called little green men because they show up in unmarked military fatigues and they abruptly start running things. They take control of local government. They're extorting local businesses. They're disappearing opponents. I don't know if Prigozhin was involved in the extensive propaganda systems, the so-called patriotic education programs that were developed in the Donbass region. It certainly makes sense, but I haven't seen his name mentioned in that connection. And then, of course, in the context of the Ukraine war, uh, not just the recent war, but the ongoing civil war in the East, they've been more efficacious and much more brutal than the Russian armed forces would be. That's a hard thing to say because the Russian armed forces can be pretty brutal. But for example, the Wagner Group is largely responsible, I think most reporting agrees, for conquering the strategic eastern city of Bakhmut in uh, Ukraine. The significance of their role is contested, I will say that, but Every report I've seen suggests they were front and centre with a frankly suicidal campaign of just sending wave after wave of soldiers into the city with a very high rate of death and attrition until the Ukrainian soldiers were almost wiped out or driven away. And they also relied, of course, on uh, the typical horrendous shelling campaign. These guys don't care at all about civilians. They're notoriously vicious in dealing with captured or injured soldiers. They just shower them with bullets or throw grenades at them or they torture them. The evidence is that they take pleasure in their sadism. And they're even alleged to have killed and tortured Russian soldiers as well, right? That's that's what I was just about to say. It gets really bizarre because, you know, from day one of the deployment in Ukraine, as it is officially called, because no one's allowed to call it war in Russia, Wagner and the Russian military are constantly at odds. Wagner want their autonomy, but they also want to keep the flows of munitions and supplies coming, uh, which the military leadership resent having to give them. And it appears there's regular firefights and confrontations between them and the Russian army, even though they're supposedly fighting on the same side. Well, early this year, a Russian colonel, Roman Vinovitin, uh, accused Wagner of abducting him and numerous other Russian soldiers who were then tortured and raped. When they had him captive, they made him release a video statement confessing that the Russian army had mined Wagner troops, causing numerous deaths. There's been loads of these sorts of accusations coming from Prigozhin. And when he was released or escaped, I'm not clear on which, he said that the confession was a coerced fiction, that there had been standoffs, but they were provoked by the Wagner group, that the latter had regularly stolen military equipment from the Russian army and kept it as trophies, that they had periodically abducted and tortured Russian troops, whom they tried, then tried to exchange for munitions. And he said that while captive, he was personally beaten and abused and sleep deprived and the other men were sexually assaulted. 
uh, you know, neither Prigozhin nor Vinovitin have much credibility here. You can imagine both of them being happy to sacrifice lives in a macho standoff. It's just that I think there is abundant evidence. And we're going to get into more of this in a minute when we talk about their operations outside Ukraine, uh, of their propensity to take pleasure in gore and sexual sadism. Um, so Vinovitin's um, allegations are grotesquely and bizarrely plausible. And when you think about that, and the source of these allegations, and the fact that Putin and the military leadership didn't immediately crack down on Wagner, you really get a sense of the chaos of the situation. Prigozhin has been permitted to constantly bait the military leadership, Shoigu and Gerasimov, shouting that they are faggots, I'm sorry for that's his homophobic term, that Shoigu is uh, Tuvan degenerate, which is a racist slur referring to the fact that Shoigu's father is a, of an indigenous Siberian ethnicity, denouncing the lies about the war, denouncing the war as a lie in itself, being done for the sake of the clans who he says rule Russia, asserting that Russia is fighting neither Nazis nor NATO in Ukraine. This is quite significant saying that while NATO is arming Ukrainians, it would be ridiculous to expect anything else, and saying that if there are any Nazis in Ukraine, and to be honest, there are some, he hasn't encountered any. And, you know, if any other Russian said this, they'd be in jail. Prigozhin continued to be portrayed on television, state television, as a military hero. And actually, he went further. He was, in his videos, basically calling, and interviews, he was calling for a bloody purge of the military leadership. He said, Stalin would have drawn conclusions. He would have shot 200 people. But so far, no one has drawn any conclusions. And this man was listened to, and is listened to, by all the right-wing milli-bloggers in Russia, the so-called Z-bloggers. And, you know, you consider also that in the same period, Prigozhin is constantly pursuing turf wars with rival elites. Uh, for example, the governor of St. Petersburg, who he claimed um, he had sort of paid for his election campaign and was supposed to have been rewarded with infrastructure con uh, contracts, and he never got them. Putin usually never allows these open battles. You know, they, the elites are supposed to fight among themselves. It's a good thing. You know, Putin just shrugs and says, well, that's a private matter but not in front of the children, you know, exposing the cracks is not encouraged. So Wagner is this outgrowth of the Russian state, which actually turned against the host, including allegedly by attacking, torturing, <laughs> raping and killing Russian soldiers. I'm sorry for laughing. It's not funny. It's awful, but uh, it's also bizarre. And nothing serious is done about this. And then, of course, the insurrection, which I know we're going to come to. But this tells you how important Wagner became to the Russian state. Do you think that part of the reason that the Wagner Group acquired this importance was that Russia's comparatively small economy means that it, it really sort of lacks soft power assets? And so it's really the military and the military industrial complex that is Putin's trump card. And, and there's an obvious incentive to double down in this one area where, where Russia is comparatively strong. I'm not entirely sure. I think, I mean, it depends what you mean by soft power. Certainly, it can't do what China's doing in terms of building infrastructure everywhere. Um, it can engage in information wars that is demonstrated that much but then that's i suppose relatively cheap my sense is simply that they from about 2005 when the orange revolution happened in ukraine they got a sense that something was going badly wrong they had already been aware of nato expansion all the rest of it but they uh, the elites in russia started to think we're being surrounded we're being encircled here Putin's theme was always that Russia was robbed during the transition, lost a lot of territory it shouldn't have been lost. 
um, and that if these countries were going to go and be, be independent, good luck to them, but they should, as he put it, take what they came with. In other words, they took too much territory. That was the argument. So I think that they had this idea that they needed to start reclaiming territory. And while the Georgia War was easy, because that was started by uh, uh, Saakashvili, um, who was a pompous uh, blithering idiot uh, who thought he would have a, a quick and easy war and prove his bona fides in front of the public but actually lost territory um, and you know Putin gained experience in setting up these pseudo independent republics starting with uh, these two areas of Georgia and then they had their eye on Crimea they had their eye on Ukraine and they were supporting these pro-Russian minorities and they hope to leverage that and to build up their territory. I mean, this is Putin's imperial nationalism. There's a term for this in Russia. It's called Novorossiya, which is an idea that started uh, spreading in 2005 and then became very prevalent. This is distinct from, by the way, the ethnic nationalism of the right, you know, who basically want closed borders and deport all the foreigners and all the rest of it. That would be where Prigozhin is coming from. But uh, Putin always said that would leave us terribly weakened. We would be a much smaller, much weaker state. We can't go down that road. So I, I think that this really is rooted in geopolitical imperatives and the fact that they, they needed to expand, but they don't have the military power. And, and certainly if they provoked a war, uh, with a major state or a coalition against them, they, they would face serious problems. So I think that they wanted to do things in other ways at first. Um, that would be my reading of it. Aside from its involvement in Ukraine, what has been the scope of the Wagner Group's activities? Where has it been operative? What exactly has it been doing since its founding in 2014? Wherever Russian imperialism goes, Wagner goes. So I've mentioned that Prigozhin's digital operations had been found in, for example, Central Africa, in Syria too. Um, the Wagner Group has been deployed in Syria, in Libya, in Mali, and in the Central African Republic and uh, other parts of the Sahel, uh, which is that region in, in Africa, just uh, in the sort of central part of it. And just to say, this is basically the Russian state propping up governments that it is in favor of by helping to physically liquidate rebellions that it isn't in favor of. And in every case, uh, the Wagner Group has been unmitigatedly cruel. So, for example, in Syria, where, of course, they were backing the Assad regime, there's a video that they recorded of their men beating a Syrian army defector to death with a sledgehammer. And this has become iconic for Wagner, the sledgehammer. Uh, they have merchandise and t-shirts depicting their logo and the sledgehammer. The troops picture themselves holding sledgehammers for the social industry. Last year, when the European Parliament censured Russia's war, Prigozhin sent them a sledgehammer in a violin case, which was smeared with fake blood. So, I mean, the picture is very clear there. I mean, that was just one example. It just became their iconic mode of death dealing. But otherwise, in Syria, the UN says they've been, you know, they kill children, they've tortured and raped women, they kill civilians. In Mali, they're supporting the government of Colonel Asimi Goita, who basically represents the military dictatorship against a rebellion in the north, which has been going since it was provoked by a 2012 military coup and has been trying to succeed. A recent uh, UN report said that the Wagner Group, in re response to basically some defensive fire from rebels in the village of Mora. Not only had they just crushed the rebels and 
uh, killed many more people than than had been firing on them. But they then spent several days rounding up and massacring about 500 people, most of them unarmed civilians. In Libya, they set up camps in the towns of Benghazi and Tobruk back in 2018. A horrible irony there because those used to be revolutionary towns back in 2011. And the point of the operation here was to support General Khalifa Haftar, who, if you know him, he basically emulates the um, secular Egyptian dictator Sisi in the ferocity of his war against a rebellion that became increasingly Islamist. And when a man unwittingly stumbled on one of their operations in the town of Esbia, they detained him and murdered his whole family. The man himself survived. I don't know how. He got away. But they decided, well, well, you, you found us. We're going to kill your whole family. And that's what they did. In the Central African Republic, they've been supporting the government of Faustin Archange uh, Tuadera. The Wagner Group supplies his personal security detail. They also protect the gold and diamond and mineral mines, which, of course, the Russian state has a direct commercial interest in. And then there's this long-standing rebellion in the country, which is basically a coalition of forces who would see them as democratic, see themselves democratic rebels against an authoritarian government, and Wagner has been deployed against them. According to an investigative report in the Daily Beast, Wagner men uh, recently stormed a maternity ward at the um, Henry Azamo military camp in the capital Bangui, and they raped the women there. And these are just some like really grisly examples of how the Russian state has done business through the Wagner group. These men, who basically have brutal, often very short lives, risking their lives every day for the interests of the Russian state and nothing else, nothing more glorious than that. And they're permitted almost anything, you know, recreational killings, torture, rape. Now, you have to presume that from Putin's point of view, it's not that much to ask for if these men are basically going to die to keep the Russian oligarchy rich. That's been their, their global role, if you like. If they're active elsewhere, as I'm sure they are, I, I'm not aware of it. You have to be, be aware that wherever they do appear, it's usually with a certain amount of deniability. Um, for a long time, Mali denied that they were operating there, but you know the evidence became overwhelming. So I would assume they're operating elsewhere. So if we come on to the so-called coup itself, what do you think Pogosian's intent was? Was it a serious attempt to overthrow the regime in the expectation that parts of the military, including General Surovikin, the former top commander of Russian forces in Ukraine, might defect to his side? Or, or was it more a, a shot across Putin's bows and that Pogosian hoped that confrontation might lead to the dismissal of Generals uh, Shoigu and Gerasimov? widely regarded, including by Prigozhin, to be the architects of Russia's failure in Ukraine? Or was it perhaps simply an act of desperation in, in the face of the plans announced in mid-June to integrate Wagner more closely into the Russian military, which threatened to really sideline Prigozhin? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's still frankly unclear. And you'll notice that most of the articles purporting to explain it give a lot of background, but very few real concrete answers. Um, you mentioned there is speculation that Wagner was basically risking being subordinated to the military, that they had been losing ground relative to the Russian army uh, in terms of their role in Ukraine. And that Prigozhin, in a, a sort of desperate act to prevent uh, Wagner troops from being subordinated to the military through a series of new contracts, launches this insurrection. And that's what Michael Kaufman at the Harvard think tank uh, Russia Matters argues. He, he also says that Wagner was a lot less important to Bakhmut than the reporting suggests. Now, I think we can make room for that possibility. 
but I don't think that would explain what happened. I don't think you just march on Russia because you're losing prestige and autonomy. There must be other conditions. It's a rather drastic action, for one thing. And if the idea was to save Wagner, well, we're not entirely sure what's happening there. The result of the abortive coup was certainly to severely reduce uh, Wagner. Whatever troops remain or haven't fled to Belarus or wherever do now face the prospect of being absorbed directly into the military. Now, I'm hesitating here, and that's because we can't take anything for granted, and Russian politics is profoundly bizarre. There was a recent investigative report, and I think it was by the BBC, in which journalists rang around Wagner recruitment centres, and they were consistently told, no, 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 we're still recruiting, send them over. The Defence Ministry has nothing to do with this. And then, in fact, Lukashenko today, I don't know if you saw this, he claims that uh, Prigozhin's back in St. Petersburg, which would be astonishing if true, unless he was actually dead. So I think we can agree even, you know, we don't know what's happening there and Russia's bizarre. Um, I'm not sure I I buy what Lukashenko is saying, but uh, we can agree probably that marching on Moscow because you're pissed off about your status vis-a-vis the official armed forces is a huge personal and political risk. So I would want to look for some other motivating factor. Prigozhin's own explanation, of course, is that Russian forces had shelled his men. They were withholding munitions. The defense minister, Shoigo, was uh, treasonously selling out the war effort. And that he was going to march to save Putin, whom he, to whom he was loyal, from his lying military leadership. And I really think we have to consider that Prigozhin um, believes his own rhetoric. Those who know him say, apparently, that he does. And what does that rhetoric say? If you look at it, statements from the Wagner Group say that uh, the interaction, they described it as a cleansing campaign, targeting, I mentioned this phrase earlier, the Tuvan degenerate, that anyone who failed to support the insurrection would be treated as siding with the Hohols, which is a racist slur for Ukrainians popular in Russia, and they would be executed. That the war... This is uh, back to um, Prigozhin again, had been run for the benefit of the ruling clans. It's very hard to see that as anything but a synonym for Jews, given Prigozhin's ideology. I know I mentioned that his father is Jewish, but you can be anti-Semitic, whatever your background. Um, That the oligarchs, by living extravagant lives while the war floundered and Russian blood was shed, that this could end, as Prigozhin put it, just as it did in 1917 with a revolution, an outcome that he obviously doesn't favour. I'm really reminded of Angela Davis's formulation of preventive fascism in this context. And that Russia should live for a certain number of years like North Korea, close all borders and stop pussyfooting around. This is standard ethno-nationalist politics in Russia. Obviously, it's to the right of Putin's imperial nationalism. So he sees, I think, Ukraine as a race war. He thinks the, the, the war against the Hohos uh, should be fought more honestly and brutally. Uh, he sees the failure to fight the war in the way he wants as evidence of treason by an ethnic inferior and as evidence that it's been started for the wrong reasons by the ruling clans and he wants a bloody cleansing operation to save the regime. I think, I think he's serious about that. And one has to infer that some in the military's higher ranks share that outlook. I mean, he must have been planning this for some time. This is what the reporting would suggest. There are certainly some reports that say he had help from Russian military commanders, but this is coming from unnamed intelligence sources, so we don't know. We can say that the ease with which he took over the military base in Rostov-on-Don and then marched more than halfway to Moscow without any friction whatsoever suggests there was some coordination there. 
we should be careful about this because many of these factoids may have been disinformation, we can't know. But Putin was reportedly put on a plane to a safe location. The airports in Moscow were reportedly filling up with people trying to get out. Capital was being rapidly exported. Let's get it out of here. This, to me, suggests something that's not done off the cuff in a moment of uh, like a huff or despair. I mean, I say sophisticated, I mean operationally sophisticated. As a political strategy, it's an utterly deranged gamble. But my sense is that uh, it was genuinely on the basis of the ideology that Prigozhin espouses, and that that makes it an ultra-right rebellion. I know you're going to come back to that, but uh, that would be my take. Do you think Prigozhin's dismissal and, and, and even mockery of the official pretexts for the invasion of, of Ukraine is because, as you sort of describe him, he is unapologetically fascist in his politics in a way which perhaps doesn't quite characterise Putin and some of the other people around him who's, who feel the need to make some more kind of relatable explanation for, the, for their actions, whereas Prigozhin is, is, is more prepared to just accept that, yes, as you say, you know, this is a race war and that's what we're doing and it's, and it's good and it's right and we should be doing this. I mean, that's, that's my uh, hunch about the situation. I think, but also, I, I mean, it, from uh, looking into Prigozhin and his past statements, the, the evidence is that he is a fairly mercurial figure. Uh, he says a lot of wild things and uh, he's a fluent liar. So, you know, it wouldn't be beyond him to tell a pack of lies. But in this case, he told the truth because partly because I think he wanted to hurt the military leadership. But yes, I think I think in part because he doesn't see a problem with the idea of fighting Ukrainians. He does see this war in frank racial terms, uh, in ethnic terms that uh, would be alien to Putin's sort of imperial nationalism, where he basically argues that Ukraine has always been part of Russia and that Ukrainians have a lot in common with Russia. I think that that is part of the the difference here. The next question is is another speculative one and, and not easy to answer really. But as we've discussed, the Wagner Group has been one of the most effective fighting forces on the Russian side. And there was a bit of overheated commentary when the rebellion occurred as to what the capture of the Southern Military Command Headquarters in Rostov and then the March on Russia might mean directly for the Ukrainian counteroffensive, with it being suggested it might have very dramatic effects on, on, on the battlefield and there might even be a, a collapse of the Russian line. But after all, the Wagner Group's forces had already been rotated out of Bakhmut at the time of the coup attempt, so it was not as if they simply left gaping holes in Russia's defensive line. But nonetheless, what do you think the significance of the rebellion is to the actual prosecution of the war in Ukraine at the moment? Honestly, I find this very hard to pass because, I mean, my assumption had been that whoever won in this standoff was going to double down really hard on the war. I mean, that's the logic of the situation. So either Prigozhin would somehow win and a far-right regime would unleash absolute hell, um, the most genocidal force possible, or Putin would win and feel pressured to unleash that sort of force. Um, the trouble is the Russian state is still bound by the same limits as to its, uh, first of all, its ability to recruit and train adequate professional personnel. Uh, it's been reported that Wagner are still recruiting, as I've mentioned, but also that most Wagner troops are still at their stations in Ukraine. And if Prigozhin is alive and well in Russia, which I just can't believe, I mean, if that's true, Putin may as well give up now. But you know, it means they desperately need the paramilitaries to fight this war for them. And I think that might be right. Now, if that isn't the case, 
And if the Wagner Group was losing ground and the Russian military in a position to take full command of the war now, well, that would be stabilizing for Putin and it would uh, suggest maybe that the overall effort was becoming more coordinated. I have to say, Russia has really had to fight hard for its territory in the east. There's no sign that they're about to break through and sweep through the majority of Ukraine. Then you could look at the situation and say, as most sort of Western security experts and diplomats have, that this is a disaster for the Russian war machine, a big boost to Ukraine. It's it's pretty hard to dispute that this has been damaging for Russia. But there's still no sign as yet that I've seen that Russia's battlefield performance is declining. Nor is there any sign that Ukraine can actually win this. I think the logic here still remains that for both parties, this it's a long, grueling, devastating war of attrition, which ultimately ends with an unstable ceasefire, probably without either side being entirely happy. That's what it looks like to me. But then, like I say, it's it's very hard to read it, and I think we need more time to see how things pan out. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other. If you would like to hear the extended version of today's interview and of other PTO shows, then please consider becoming a supporter. You can get access to extended versions of PTO episodes from £3 a month. And if you're outside the UK, you can also support the show in your local currency. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. The show's music and graphic design is produced by Planet B Productions. I'll be back with a regular show soon. Thanks for listening. Thank you.